Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is uh, Paul Axton. I'm here. I wanted to explain a little bit about Rene Girard. We've done a program on Rene Girard, Frank and I had. I wanted to extend that, so this would be part two of Rene Girard, and I want to actually go ahead and apply what Girard has done. Let me set Girard a bit in if we were talking about atonement theory, that, you know, Girard is obviously over and against penal substitution. In fact, the whole point of his scapegoating is a kind of demonstration that what we have in, I think, both Calvinist uh, penal substitution and Anselmian uh, divine satisfaction is a, a demonstration that those systems operate within what he would call a scapegoating mechanism or a kind of closed economy in which the uh, sacrifice is, in, in fact, functioning as a system of exchange much like the primitive in a propitiation in which you feed the gods or the substitute sort of sacrifice in which you put the violence on the individual and get rid of the violence. Well, and in fact, God is pictured as a kind of, a kind of fill-in in which uh, the scapegoat is something that he needs. And so Gerard's whole system is a, a, to show that scapegoating, that propitiation as we have it, in primitive religions and in uh, Calvinist uh, doc or penal substitution it is really just a continuation of a kind of misunderstanding that of, of an unconscious drive. Now, you know, if you would go to the other end in my own journey in atonement theory that uh, I came up with, came, encountered uh, Jürgen Moltmann's picture of that, and Moltmann is taking Hegel quite seriously. And so for me, that was a kind of insight, uh, a counter to what we usually get in penal substitution. But of course, Moltmann and Hegel are a swing in the opposite direction that you have death itself uh, necessarily uh, functioning as an absolute in that Christ died and, you know, the picture that God turned his face away from Christ at the crucifixion and uh, in some way Christ was abandoned on the cross and the picture in the psalm that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, if you read the rest of the psalm, God has not forsaken him and God has not turned his face away that the psalm says precisely the opposite of that. There is a sense in which uh, Moltmann and Hegel is a corrective to penal substitution. It's just an overcorrection in that where penal substitution seems to take place only in the mind of God. I'd say the same thing about Anselm's doctrine of divine satisfaction. That with uh, Moltmann's and Hegel's picture, it is a purely historical event or a working out in history. And, uh, but in a sense, again, I think there is too much, there is an essence, rather, uh, uh, attached to death that is a kind of mistaken understanding. Now, so if we set Gerard and we say that in some way Gerard's idea of the, the scapegoating mechanism being revealed in Christ, this is an explanation 
I would say I would say it is an an explanation. It is not a you know it's not like this is the the final and full explanation. That other understandings can be laid aside, uh, set aside along with this understanding. And this is part of the, when we come to the understanding of the atonement as actually resulting in the kingdom of God, that I think the research program of applying scripture and seeing how this works itself out is one that actually opens up the research like Gerard, but many other forms of research. So my own research that in psychoanalysis is not over and against or, you know, that, that it fits with a Gerardian understanding. But I think in a sense we can begin to, to accumulate an insight into how the, the kingdom of God established through the life, death, resurrection of Christ is one that has an ongoing program of research and explanation and understanding that this is not a formula that you know we can reduce to something you know that was the beauty of a mistaken thing like penal substitution you have a formula and a and a and an understanding that is quite simple you say this and but the problem of course it obstructs the New Testament, it actually, once you read the New Testament through penal substitution, you begin to fail to see what's actually there in, in the New Testament. And I would say the same thing in a, in a kind of the opposite sense with uh, Hegelian or Moltmann's understanding, that there's a bit of a mystification that in some way does the opposite. It cripples an, an understanding in that it mystifies and makes almost apophatic then in, in, in uh, making it, attempting to make it historical in, in an ironic sense. Yeah, but it doesn't in any way come into our realm of comprehension. And so what is taking place, you know, in, in the New Testament, I think, with the uh, Christus Victor, which uh, would be an explanation that we could fill out that, uh, Christ has defeated Satan, or he's defe defeated evil, or he's defeated the principalities and powers, that we can begin to identify how those principalities and powers uh, may be working themselves out politically, uh, they may be working themselves psychoanal out psychoanalytically in various cultural modes, and that the, the death of Christ then, or the life death and resurrection of Christ addresses those. So let me uh, begin with Gerard having set him in that. I'm going to quote from two texts. One is from the period of 1300s in which the plague was sweeping the world and, and thousands, tens of thousands of people were dying. And this is a document that comes out that explains the cause of the plague. And what I want to do, I'm going to set this side by side with a, a more ancient text that is mythological and demonstrate in the comparison of the two texts. The, once we've exposed the scapegoating mechanism, what precisely then is no longer available to us?
in that would be that that's almost to put it wrong in a primitive society you know that they call upon myth and of course what's happening here is that we can no longer uh, deify the scapegoat but here's the text during the time of the black death after that came a false treacherous and contemptible swine this was shameful israel the wicked and disloyal who hated good and loved everything evil, who gave so much gold and silver and promises to Christians, who then poisoned several rivers and fountains that had been clear and pure so that many lost their lives. For whoever used them died suddenly. Certainly 10 times 100,000 died from it in country and in city. Uh, to summarize what the text is saying is the Jews are obvious in this understanding. They're the ones that poisoned the rivers and the wells, and this is the explanation of the plague, and therefore uh, the Jews are at fault. The, the text goes on, Then finally this moral calamity was noticed. He who sits on high and sees far, who governs and provides for everything, did not want this treachery to remain hidden. He revealed it and made it so generously known that they lost their lives and possessions. What uh, the text is describing is people began to slaughter the Jews. And so thousands of Jews would lose their lives because they were scapegoated, they were blamed for the plague. Then every Jew was destroyed. Some hanged, others burned, some were drowned, others beheaded with an axe or sword. And many Christians died together with them in shame. Apparently, uh, People came forward, Christians came forward and said, wait a minute, this is, this is wrong. Now, we can read this text, I hope we can read it and say, well, obviously this is um, a scapegoating text, that the blame is being put on the Jews and that they didn't have the, the understanding of the, the fleas and mice and uh, how the plague was actually conveyed. And so we can look at this text and say that, that it's a, an example of scapegoating, but of course what is missing is the full work of scapegoating. That if this were, if the scapegoating mechanism were fully working, we would not have access to the reality behind the text. That is, that it would have turned into myth and that with the sacrifice of the Jews, healing would have come from the plague and the Jews or individuals or a particular individual would have been in some way deified. And the myth then would cover over what is not covered over in this text. And that is that murders were taking place, that thousands of murders were taking place. And so Gerard's point is that historically, we no longer have a myth available to us. It no longer functions. You know, in this, in a sense, even in a society like Japan, where the myths are still, at some level, functional, uh, people don't really, you know, believe in the myths. Now, maybe 
devout Shinto a priest might, but I, I would question even there that the myths of Z Izanami and Izanagi, you know, that uh, Izanami is the female goddess and Izanagi seals her in the tomb and that, that it, it's a, a typical myth in which life comes out of death and the death of uh, Izanami is then responsible for the birth of the islands of Japan and for the sun itself, for the moon who come, that comes out of the uh, Izan, Izanagi washing himself in the river. Similar things in the Enuma Elish that creation is a byproduct of the death. And so what happens in myth is precisely not what's happening in this text. Uh, the next text I'd read is from an Aztec myth. This one functions exactly in the opposite way. They say that before the, there was day in the world, the gods came together in that place, which is named Teotihuacan. They said to one another, O oh gods, who will have the burden of lighting the world? Uh, then to these words answered a god named Tectazical, and he said, I shall take the burden of lighting the world. Then once more the gods spoke, and they said, Who will be another? Then they looked at one another and deliberated on who the other should be. And none of them dared offer himself for that office. All were afraid and declined. One of the gods, to whom no one was paying attention and who was covered with pustules, did not speak but listened to what the other gods were saying. And the others spoke to him and said to him, You be the one who is to give light, little pustule-covered one. And right willingly he obeyed what they commanded. And he answered, Thankfully I accept what you have commanded me to do. Let it be as you say. And so here's an Aztec myth, very similar in some ways to the Japanese myth as to how we get the sun. That there here is a, a you know, the little pustule covered one, you know, in Gerard's understanding would be the scapegoat. And that we probably have an actual historical event covered over by a myth that in some way there was a sacrifice. The one that appears to volunteer, of course, is, is the one that is in fact scapegoated. But we would not have access, we could not read this myth apart from a theory like Gerard's in which we have the same sort of event as in the Black Death, that there's probably some sort of crisis in the society. But in this instance, the religion kicks in, and the resolution, and of course in Girardian understanding, the crisis is a, a crisis of violence in which people are turning on one another and, and uh, killing one another, that the, the religion, the sacrificial religion, will, will handle. And so myth is a, a confusing world, and uh, all primitive societies practiced sacrificial rites that closely resembled one another. The myths don't necessarily, you know, the stories are very different. But what Gerard's point is, yes, but the, the thing that is 
unifying the stories is this understanding that the scapegoat in some way, that is what the myths are doing, is covering over something, and what the thing that is covered over is the unifying factor. That is the unified structure. And his point that this could not have derived from simply religious ideas, that, that there is such a myriad of forms in the religion that the forms of the myth themselves do not take on a unity. The myths are so bizarre in one sense. But what unifies them is that the, the myths are connected with sacrifices. Sacrifices were collective rites, and they're not individual religious acts. And so Gerard sees a relationship between the unified sacrificial structure and what he calls the vital needs of primitive society that is in some way to channel the violence. It's not that these people are just hallucinating or the, the myths in some way, you know, that these bizarre stories just are pulled out of thin air, but they truly tremble in the presence of what they are going to call sacred powers and they're going to observe the sacrificial rites in such scrupulous detail because to do otherwise, their tribe or their clan would not survive. That the sacrificial religion and the uh, emergence of the clan are synonymous. So, of course, the point is that primitive man does not understand the underlying structures of his own society that the society is structured on unconscious principles. And this is where Gerard and Freud have a, a bit of a connection, that the unconscious is the controlling factor. And maybe humans are normally not conscious of the ultimate threads of impulse, maybe even in the modern period, behind their actions. This is, you know, the really, when we read psychoanalysis, but also when we read the Bible, Part of the structure of sin is that sin is a lie, and what part, part of an aspect of a lie is you do precisely what the scapegoating mechanism does. It refuses, it suppresses, it denies. And in the process then, you do not have conscious access to the structuring principle if your life is grounded in a lie you yourself do not have access to that principle. And so both in psychoanalysis and the biblical picture of sin, and I think in Gerard's picture, man is portrayed as trapped in his own self-deception. And the deception then is always a deception uh, in regard to the orientation to death. You know, this is the, the whole point in Genesis 3 that you will not die, and so the, the knowledge of good and evil is a kind of pride. And of course, when this, you know, as the wisdom literature says, that before pride, before the uh, shame comes pride, that pride comes before the fall, before shame. But the idea is that this then gives rise to the murders that follow. The structure is murderous, that it explains the rage of Cain, both shame and rage are interlocked. The rage of Lamech, who would avenge himself 70 times 7. Uh, the generation of Noah, but 
in our own day, you know, the rage of the boys going into Columbine or the historically when I, in Japan, you know, one of the big events was the earthquake, the Kanto earthquake in the uh, early 1900s. And well, the, the Koreans were blamed for starting the fires and many Koreans were slaughtered. So that rage, you know, this is the point of Christ that, that you're blind. Well, this blindness has a particular anatomy, and Gerard's theory explains the anatomy, that naive persecutors are unaware of what they are doing. Rage makes all human beings blind in the same way and leads them to accuse their enemy of all that is evil. And of course, this is Gerard's departure from Freud, that Freud would make the unconscious structured around sexuality. And Gerard is saying, no, it's not sexuality uh, that is the hidden force, though it may, may play a role, but in shame and rage and anger, they become so acute that the real adversary is lost sight of, that you just latch on, you know, witness the, any time that there is a mass shooting, the, the person doing the shooting is clearly enraged, but he's just shooting people at random. The aroused passion turn upon any chance object, even though it does not, you know, there's, doesn't offer the slightest objective reason for the, the emotional outburst, that anger is blind, this rage is blind. And so the capacity to jump to another object, to seize, upon the surrogate victim is part of what Gerard is tracing, that in the sacrificial rituals, they are secretly aimed to give violence a substitute object that can leap to this other object and thus channel it, control it, and protect people from the sort of thing the Koreans experienced in Japan or the Jews experienced continually, and it's interesting, the Jews then are the, the uh, prototypical scapegoat, and there are reasons for that. Obviously, in some way, they're the odd men out in that they uh, have this religion that does not allow them to completely meld in, or at least are perceived not to. The Jews in Germany think even of, of you know, Martin Luther falls into the same scapegoating of the Jews. So animal sacrifices are uh, themselves an object that are displacing the sacrifice of what would normally have been prisoners of war, slaves, children. These sort of inconsequential, and uh, obviously uh, speaking from the society standpoint, that they would not trigger the dangerous cycle of blood vengeance, that you can sacrifice foreigners or slaves, and it does not unleash the Hatfields and McCoys sort of cycles of vengeance. And I think what we often miss is that historically, many people's lives, maybe the majority of people's lives in primitive societies were lived in fear of that sort of vengeance. You know, all the dissensions, this is Gerard, rivalries, jealousies, and quarrels within the community. The, the sacrifices are designed to suppress them. And the purpose of the sacrifice is to restore harmony 
to the community to reinforce the social fabric. And then everything else derives from that. So if once we take this fundamental approach to sacrifice, choosing the road that violence opens up for us, we can see that there is no aspect, Gerard says, of human existence foreign to the subject, not even material prosperity. And obviously when people no longer live in harmony with one another, yeah, the, the cycles still continue. The sun shines, the rain falls, but the fields, Gerard says, are less well attended and harvest less abundant. And so outside of formalized aggression, the cycle of blood vengeance will not stop itself. So it has to be channeled, formalized, you know, created and ritualized, sacralized. And in the midst then of where, if, where this does not happen or, or either way, that as long as the scapegoating mechanism is up and running, no one is capable of the truth. No one can put their finger on it and say, uh, this is really what, it, what is happening. Now, when, with the advent of Christianity, Gerard will say, yeah, but now we have access. And so even in the first manuscript I read, you have Christians who uh, probably are very much a minority, but some of them see what's happening and they attempt to stop it. But even in the modern period with the witch trials, the Salem witch trials, no one apparently could step in and say, wait a minute, this is, this is ridiculous. So we go from undifferentiated violence, maybe you could even date this, but pre-Babel, it, it seems like the generation of Noah are just given over to undifferentiated violence. In post-Babel, we see the rise of idolatry and of sacrificial religion. Otherwise, you would just have vengeance on the order of Noah. So there is a, a sense then that idolatrous or sacrificial religion is an improvement over the generation of Noah, who are, are complete sociopaths. Gerard's point is that in the modern period, a too conscious and calculating an awareness of all the scapegoat connotes eliminates the essential point that the persecutors believe in the guilt of their victim. That is, during the Black Death, some people said, wait a minute, the Jews are not guilty. There has to be a kind of epidemic of blame, and this is what we get then, usually, in, you know, when people are demonized. And people are imprisoned then in the illusion of persecution that is then a closed system that in Gerard's understanding, it's only in the revelation of Christ that you can break out of that. So the power of the scapegoat is there's only one person responsible for everything, one who is absolutely responsible, and he will be responsible for the cure. In other words, the focus on the scapegoat sets up the possibility for the sacralizing, for the making sacred uh, what was uh, ultimately profane. And of course, this is, Gerard's going to tie these two things together. That the word sacred signifies something that is at the same time cursed and blessed, repulsive and attractive, ugly and radiant. 
point the threshold of belief that you have to believe so that there is a reversal in the relationship between persecutors and their victims, that you produce the sacred, and then you get the founding ancestors, the divinities, the deities that are controlling everything. And so where anger and violence tend to eliminate difference, that there's just unleashed violence, that the scapegoat marks difference, it channels difference, it organizes people over and against the scapegoat. Let me end this uh, part two then with that understanding, and in, in part three, I'll begin to discuss how Christ takes apart the, the scapegoat. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.